you would take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Well, friends, we saw this week with great clarity that the world lies in the power of the evil one. We learned last week that we as uh, believers don't find the commands of God to be burdensome, but rather we find burdensome the spirit that is alive, alive and at work in the world. And friends, with gut-wrenching clarity, we learned this week that that spirit is alive both within and without the church. On Monday, one of the largest evangelical denominations released a report detailing the refusal of some arrogant leaders to respond to and to support victims of the most heinous abuse. Unspeakable. And yet we realize that our Savior told us rightly that there would be wolves in sheep's clothing and that many come falsely in His name. On Tuesday, a coward walked into a school and took the lives of 19 children and two teachers. And then we saw the foolish responses unfold from so many of our politicians. Friends, if I ask this morning, what does it look like for a nation to be given over wholly to her sin? I can't imagine that it looks anything different than what we've experienced this week. That innocent people suffer in places where they should be cherished and loved. And yet that seems to be our reality. And it's why it's so encouraging to know that we as Christians, John has told us, he's written for our joy in the face of that world, that we are overcomers of this world. And John wants us to know that reality, not in some theological platitude. He wants us to weave that reality in our lives. He wants us to live day by day when we get reports like that. And we are yet overcomers, friends. So with that, if you would do honor to the reading of God's Word and stand today. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5 again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is God's Word to you and I today. Beloved, would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence. We acknowledge our frailty. And we ask that as we consider afresh and anew the mysteries of your Word, that you would keep your glory always before us. That we would not seek to live our lives for our own comfort, our own uh, uh, entertainment, our own ease, but that we would live lives seeking to gaze deep into Your Word that we might behold wondrous things. Father, would You write these truths on all of our hearts. In Christ's name, Amen. 
You may be seated. Friends, when we look back at the reality of the story of the church, we find that it is a story of the church being at odds continually with the world. Now, in our generation, we have a, a mentality that creeps into the church and says, well, we can't win the world. We'll never see Christ really at work until we befriend and become just like the world. The whole problem of overcoming the world is the theme, though, that is highlighted here and throughout the centuries. The story of the church is not merely just that we are other than the world and that the church should be distinct from the world. It is that by God's grace, in spite of who we are, we overcome the world. And so this idea that we have to befriend the world and become just like the world so that we may be effective for gospel ministry is one that is actually antithetical to everything that's written in Scripture. Now that doesn't mean we have to be crusty, stoic, arrogant, pompous gas bags of religion. It means that we follow and we love Christ for who He actually is and what He has declared in His Word. Friends, the reality is that the moment that we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it was Charles Spurgeon who said, if today you have room in your heart for Christ, know that you will be at enmity with the world. That the world will have no place for you, I think is what Spurgeon said. People who have no sense of conflict at all in their lives contending for the Gospel, well friends, often that is a reality merely in the lives of people who are spiritually still in their, dead in their trespasses and sins. Because the moment that we come to know Christ, we become aware of this spiritual battle in our lives and in the lives of all the saints. It's what Paul wrote of in Ephesians chapter 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So the question isn't whether or not the, the, the church should become like the world. The answer to that is clear. We shouldn't become like the world because we are, are at war with the system of the world. The question must be how is this world to be fought and overcome? And I want to give you three predominant views. One, the motivational view, two, the monastic view, and three, the biblical scriptural view, which I think is most helpful. The motivational view is the one that we've all come to know. It's just that you need to think better. You need to have a better emotional state and an emotional frame. There is a song where we sing, I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly rest in Jesus' name. A frame is an emotional state of being. And the saints of old knew that we don't trust in how we feel emotionally. It's not just motivational, but these motivational views, well, you just need to have the right inspirational, light, breezy view of the Gospel. We just need to have positive thoughts. We, we just need to hear Jesus calling. We need to look at Jesus as the great 
motivational example. And what ends up happening in the motivational view is Jesus gets turned into an absolute fool and the world sees that that motivational view of the faith is nothing more than silly. You will see this motivational view really well in most popular Christian writing. Because they're not writing to make plain the Scriptures to the saints because that doesn't sell. They're writing merely to motivate people who are still dead in their trespasses and sins to feel just a bit better about their lives so that they will do something in the name of Jesus. But it's really not the true Jesus at all. So I'm not going to labor long here. I think you understand the motivational view of just rah-rahing you and pumping you up I used to have so much anxiety about, I'll never be able to do that in the ministry. I'll never be able to rah-rah hundreds of people motivationally week in and week out to be responsible in that regard to just to light your fire every week. And then I realized, wait a minute, that's not my job at all. Because when the Word of God is made plain, the people of God become inflamed for gospel ministry. So the second view is the monastic view. And this is the view that says we have to be cut out from the world. Now, this morning as I speak, I'm going to speak primarily from a a Catholic monastic really being a monk view. But I don't want you to think that's not alive and well in Baptist churches. We have monks in our crowd too. They tend to withdraw from everything that is not convenient and that doesn't add up to their particular standard. Uh, these type of people will kind of take a spiritual assessment of something, and if it doesn't meet the standard of perfection, then we are out. That's a monastic view. Now one thing that we have to see as good in the view of monasticism is this reality. The monastic sees the world as a problem. The the motivational view doesn't always see the world as a problem. You just need to be encouraged in that world. But the monastic view looks at the world and says, wait a minute, there is something way wrong here. And we need to completely remove ourselves from that something that is wrong. And the essence of the monastic or the Catholic view of fighting the world is this. It believes in withdrawing from the world, but it also emphasizes the exercise of willpower and the observance of rules and regulations. Does that sound like anybody that you know inside of the Baptist faith? Withdrawing from the world and making everything about rules and regulation. Ultimately, this view says that the world is bad and the only way to overcome it is to completely come out of it. So what do we have to say to this? How do we respond? Well, the first thing is that this view is absolutely impractical. It doesn't work because not everybody can come out of the world. Somebody's got to stay behind and actually do the work. Um, it, it gives the average person ultimately no hope. A way to deal with this system uh, is, is ultimately uh, there are two kinds of people. The, the way that this, well, if you say, well, this is impractical, the way that the monastic will respond is, well, what we have to do is we have to delineate two types of people. There will be the ordinary people and they're left to the world. And then there will be the extraordinary people, the people that come out from the world, and they'll take up this whole vocation of living the Christian life, and that will be the sum total of holy living. It's found in those who come out and who vocationally are in the world. And what this does is it divides the church. 
It divides the church into those of us who will wear the the clerical collar and the mitre and um, bishops and popes and all of the, the like, that hierarchical structure, and they will live the holy life and they'll be referred to by titles that denote them as such, but then there will be the rest of of the church and they live their lives in the world with really no hope of ever overcoming the world except if this group of of just regular folks that are in the world come to this group of extraordinary folks who are the ones given to the holy life and this group bestows blessings on that group. Now do you remember the great long treatise that Paul wrote Encouraging that system? Of course you don't. Because he never wrote it. Because he never interacted with the church in that way. The apostles never came to the church and made themselves uh, something, a, a mechanism by which everyone else must live their overcoming faith in Christ. Rather, the apostles were messengers. And and the reason that we find John in his letter and Peter and Paul contending for their apostolic authority isn't because of their own position and their own spirituality. It is because they are contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. They are the ones that God has actually called to give us the message. Now we have that message in the Word of God and we no longer in any way need to see any distinction in that respect. Yes, there were apostles at one time who delivered the Word of God, but that is complete. And now we come to the Word to understand how to live this overcoming, victorious life. The apostles never ultimately made this hierarchical structure. doesn't happen. But the ultimate tragedy of this monastic view, in my opinion, is that it forgets this one fact. You can go out of the world and lock yourself away in a dungeon, and the fact is you've still taken the world with you because the world is at work in your heart. Let me illustrate. How many times have you been alone and no one else is there, and there's been no one to tempt you, there's been no one to gossip with you, there's been nobody there for you to gossip to. There's been no other individual, you're all to yourself and you're sitting there, and yet you are immensely tempted to sin. In fact, a lot of what, ha- what, what happened last week in, being, uh, in, in what has come out about some of the abuses in the church is that people can be by themselves and be neck deep in sin. And why is that? It's because they take the sinful nature of the world. It's still inside of them. It's still ruling and reigning. The flesh remains to be contended with. The world that needs to be overcome mostly isn't out here. It's in here. There's an illustration of a man who had heard a sermon that said we need to put all sin to death. And we do need to mortify sin in our flesh. And this particular sermon encouraged him, so you need to go and be alone for a long period of time with the Lord. And I'm not against I think we should spend some time uh, particularly in our day with the Lord and in prayer and reading His Word and in communion and fellowship with Him. 
But in this particular way, it was kind of an encouragement that the individual would uh, leave for an entire day and just pray before God for deliverance supernaturally from all of the besetting sin that he was struggling with. And so he did that. He went to a mountaintop and he prayed and he, he wrestled with God and immediately he felt, re he felt relief. He felt like, well, I, I don't think that I struggle with these particular sins that I've been wrestling with anymore. And so he spent some more time on the mountaintop and he praised God that he had overcome the, wor the, 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 the sinful inclinations of his heart. And he's rejoicing all the way down the mountain. He's thinking about how awesome this is that sin has been put to death in his body by this monastic kind of encouragement that he's received. He's spent this whole day and now his life's going to be great because he's not going to sin anymore. And as he's coming down the mountain, he notices some farmers out in the field bringing in their crop. And his thought is, boy, I am so much better than they are. I've spent my day with God while they've spent their day in regular work. Look at me. Uh-oh. Pride has just crept in. And the world is still at work even though he's led the monastic lifestyle. You see, friends, our greatest and chief enemy is our own rotten heart. We need to deal with what is inside of us before we can ever speak to what's going on outside of us. And it's interesting to note that that kind of illustration isn't far from the life that Martin Luther led prior to his coming to salvation, prior to him actually finding victory in Christ, he led a monastic lifestyle. He climbed the steps there in Rome and he prayed all of the prayers. And he, he, If you've heard me preach for very long, I'm sure I've mentioned this in the past, his confessor, the person that he confessed to, finally had to tell him to shut up and go away and come back, Mr. Luther, when you have something to, that's worthy of confession. And he's constantly in the confessional. He's constantly trying to find peace and overcome the world through all of these rigid systems. And he could never find it. Not until he learned that justification is by faith alone. That it is only when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for our righteousness that we actually obtain it. So this monastic system, it's impractical. It leaves some without hope of overcoming. And friends, beware of living the evangelical monastic life that speaks into the... And, and here's, here's the reality. The movement that started this church used to have a doctrine called... Uh, and I may mess this up. I think the doctrine was uh, double separation. And that was that, if you, that we don't do things that are sinful which I think is an arrogant mindset in and of itself. But we won't do those sinful things like going to the movies. We would never go to the movies. And not only will we not go to the movies, but if we know someone that goes to the movies, we don't become friends with those people. Do you see monasticism alive in that kind of thinking? And it really doesn't work. Now, I, I don't think that we should, I said this last week, we shouldn't get as close to the world as we possibly can. That's not my argument this morning. But we cannot cut ourselves off from the world because part of what we're doing in that testimony is this. We are teaching people that they can only overcome this world 
by living a life that in their own way of thinking, being lost in this world, they'll never achieve in their own strength. We start to preach a gospel of works in the way we relate to the world before we ever open our mouths. In the monastic view, it's impractical. It leaves some people without hope, but ultimately it's unscriptural. All we need to do is look at the life of Christ. If you're, if you're sitting there and saying, well, I think that the doctrine of double separation is pretty solid. Well, praise God that Jesus didn't think that it was. Because then He would have separated Himself from all of us. And He did not do that. Now, we're different from Christ, and we have to acknowledge that reality. We don't, uh, we're not holy the way that He was holy, and we're not impeccable to sin the way that He was. But friends, we are still called to love our neighbor who is outside of Christ in the Gospel. We are still called to bear witness to the fact that our overcoming the world isn't because we remove ourselves from it, because the glorious news of the Gospel that we bear is that our Savior left the throne room of His own glory to take on human flesh and the likeness of a servant and to live a life alongside of you and uh, people like you and I. Jesus didn't segregate Himself from the world. He became God with us. He was in the world, and He loved common people. And it was the Pharisees that when He came, said, look at Him. He can't be a prophet. He can't be the the Messiah. There's no way that He's the Son of God because He mixes with common people. He's non-monastic. See how common this kind of thinking is. So there's the motivational view, there's the monastic view, and then there is the biblical view. And we come back to this question. How do Christians arrive at the position in which they overcome the world? And John the Apostle is giving us two here reasons, two two ways of how we as Christians overcome the world. First, we overcome the world because of what has happened to us in verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Everyone who God births into His kingdom overcomes the world. Secondly, because their faith enables them to overcome. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Christians are those who by their nature overcome. They have already overcome, and we find that they are people who are still overcoming. But again, the question is, how do they do this? Well, it's not by taking up a holy vocation. It's not by, and friends, that side note to that, that whole monastic structure, what it does is it makes some people's vocations godly and other people's vocations godless. And the fact is, we're told to work heartily under the Lord, and it doesn't matter if you are a preacher, a pastor, or a plumber, you can do your job to the glory of God. God be praised forever, we're not monastic in our view of vocation. Well, that was a rabbit trail. It's not, we don't overcome by vocation. It's ultimately, first and primarily, something that has happened to us. We have been made Christians. We, we have to see that first, Christians overcome the world because we are born, we are begotten of God. For everyone who has been born of God. Do you see the action on our part in that first part of the verse? 
<laughs> you don't because it's not there because to be an overcomer first God is the one who has to birth you into his kingdom he has to take you out of the world and he has to put you in his kingdom in his family as part of the church his body and what happens is because he has done that you overcome the gospel this morning friends is not Pump yourself up, be motivated, come out from the world, do a bunch of things, and then God will receive you. The, the joy of the gospel is you will overcome as he has begotten you. Isn't that a joy this morning? To not have to sit and worry and fret and wonder whether or not you will overcome the world, friends, if you love Jesus this morning. If you love the biblical Jesus that calls you to faith and repentance, mark it down, then you are one who has overcome the world. Positionally in Christ, you are an overcomer. You have all of His victory. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And you have to see that it's very important. Paul, or excuse me, John here, rather, writes in a very succinct way order and that order matters he, he says uh, first the new birth is important that first part for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world that is the catalyst to being an overcomer then the second is our faith and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith so we are overcomers positionally but then in faith we continue and we're going to talk about this in a week or so, um, we, we start to appropriate our faith day by day in being overcomers in particular spiritual battles. And then thirdly, he puts that in a particular faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in our relationship with him in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, we can be saved and not have those things in order in our minds. We can be overcomers and not understand the order that is laid out there. But our Christian living will always be disordered because we will think somehow, some way, I have to, in my own strength, be the overcomer when the reality is the Christian faith is one that is first and primarily a gospel of what God has done and we live in response to that gospel. If we have... If we have been born again, what John is telling us is that we will have a new view on life. We will have a completely different worldview. It's not that we will be taken out of the world to overcome it. We will simply see the world for what it is. Because we have been taken from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life, all, all of a sudden we'll look up and go, whoa. The world's not what I once thought it was. It looks different to me. It's lost. It's broken. It's cold. It's confused. And oh my word, that lost, dark, confused world is starting to creep its way into the church. And that will be a concern to us if we are in Christ. This is obvious the moment that we begin to think about it. It's obvious that this must be what it, the Bible's talking about. If we think about it in terms of real life, often theology gets pervaded into our lives or gets perpetrated into our, our, our thinking and our minds because we don't think about it in real world practical terms. This overcoming 
of the world. If it really does mean that we are to be monastic, then most of the world is largely damned. The reality, if we think about two people, let's call them Joe and George. And Joe and George are living their lives in San Angelo, Texas, and they work together, and they go to the, 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 the same um, places of educational insti- uh, of, of education. They live pretty parallel lives. But Joe actually sees Jesus for who he is, and he actually believes that the gospel is true, And he actually lives his life in light of what the Word of God says. And George just doesn't. He doesn't see the world in that way. Then where do we see the the overcoming efficacy in the lives of those two individuals? Is it because they've come out of the world? No. Is it because they've been given different motivation? No, they were both educated the same way. They both live in the same town. They both do the same work. What is different between Joe and George is that Joe has the spirit of the living God in him. He has been given the divine nature, and George hasn't. Pray for George, because God can do miracles. But all of that to say, practically speaking, we see the reality, the difference between the one who overcomes the world and the one that doesn't is the one who overcomes is the one who has been given the divine nature and he has a new way of seeing the world around him. And the way that he sees the world is no longer, Joe doesn't see the world with Joe at the center. George does. And George is always overwhelmed by the world because he's at the center of it. But Joe sees the reality that this world was created for the glory of God and this world isn't about Joe, it's about his king. You see, I'm no different than my neighbor, but I see differently. That's what makes me ultimately an overcomer. The second principle So first, it's because of what's happened to us. Secondly, we overcome because we, because of the fact that we have a new nature, then we are able to exercise and live by faith. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In other words, our rebirth gives us the faculty of faith and enables us to exercise that faith and live by it. Friends, the world is a powerful place. The the world is not something... Sarah, you and I need to be concerned about the systems of the world because we have five children. And those five children are going to have to face the world in all of its power and its strength. And I think some Christians tend to think of the world as just merely a morally subpar way of thinking. They forget the reality that the world is an entire system set against the church. Now, God has promised us that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. But the reality is the world is still powerful. And we have that illustrated in the reality of all of Scripture. Look, think back all throughout the Old Testament. And David, Moses, Joshua. They think about all of these heroes of the faith that we have in the Old Testament. And here's the question. Were they able to withstand the world in their own strength? 
Were they able to overcome the world by just merely living a moral life? And the answer to that is a resounding no. Every one of the Old Testament patriarchs and the Old Testament heroes of the faith ultimately fell to the world system at varying parts in their lives. And so have we. Only Christ is the one who has ultimately overcome and vanquished sin once and for all. We are told in Romans 3 that none is good, no, not one. I love the way that is written because there's no arguing it. Paul says, if, if Paul would have left it just as none is good, he knew that there would be some knot-headed theologian that would come along and, and put in parentheses, except this group of people. And Paul says, no, not even one of them. We all have succumbed to the worldly ideology and the worldly system. It is something that besets us, it is in us, and we must fight not in the strength of our own ability, we must fight by some other means that is stronger than the world which is outside of us and which we are a part of. And so what is it that we need to overcome this world? And the answer to that question is, we need to be emancipated. We need to be set free. We need to be lifted to another realm. We need to be given strength and power that is above our ability. We need ultimately to be possessed by one who is greater than we are and greater than the world around us. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit of God. Christians are then ultimately people who have overcome the world positionally because they are in Christ and then daily in their struggle for faith because of the faith that they have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We overcome by what has happened to us and by what is available, the faith that we have been given. Friends, sometimes people ask me, what what difference does it make if we believe that we chose Jesus or He chose us, down one road leads a, is a life of religious pride. I have overcome the world because I have this great faith and it's attached to Jesus. The other road is I have faith only because it's been handed to me by the hand of majesty, by God Himself. I am set free from this world by nothing other than divine grace. There is nothing, when we stand amazed, it is not in our own presence, it is only in Christ. And we are able to exercise that faith, not because we are spiritual giants in and of ourselves, but because our victor Jesus has overcome sin and death. And we rest in Him And we exercise the faith that He has bestowed upon us. We are nothing more than recipients of grace. I think Martin Luther's dying words were, uh, he wrote this paragraph out, and then at the very end he said, we are beggars, it is true. The Christian, the victorious Christian life isn't one of strengthening yourself in your own ability. It's one of resting in Christ and in His work alone. In knowing that He is good and that He will meet every need that we have to live our lives for His glory. John then goes on to a third step. Not only are we overcomers because of our position in Christ, 
We're overcomers because of the faith that we have been given. But then he goes on in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The thing, in other words, that makes Christian men and women overcome the world and enables them to do so, and to do so increasingly, is their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ, to His work, and what He has accomplished, and what He has already finished. It is not just carrying out a number of rules. It's not removing yourself from the world. It's not living by your own sense of power, your own strength, your own mindset. It is resting in the work of Christ and Christ alone. And in fact, that is what Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2. He's making this entire argument about feasts and different rituals and different... different, um, different components of what people are saying we must do to be faithful in Christ. And what Paul writes is, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Do you know what Jesus te- or what Paul tells us about Jesus in Colossians 2? Go home today and read Colossians chapter 2. What what he is ultimately telling us is this. Christ is everything that you need. Jesus is sufficient in every area of your life. And when your mind says, yeah, but what about this sin struggle that I have? Yes, he is sufficient for that. What about this relational struggle that I have? Yes, he's sufficient for that. What about this physical need that I have? Yes, rest in him. He is enough in everything. You don't need a list of rules. You don't need a particular ceremony. You need Jesus in your life. You need Christ to reign preeminently. It's why the theologies that are pervade in our day in the church telling people you can live your best life now and Jesus really wants you to have everything that your heart desires. The reason that's so damnable and awful is because our awful hearts will crave more and more and more and they'll never be fulfilled when we're leeching onto the world. But when we actually come to Christ, When He births us anew into His kingdom and we are overcomers and then by faith every day we appropriate that faith and live out what it means to be part of Christ's body. Friends, then we begin to see that it doesn't matter how many cars we have. It doesn't matter what we feel like on Sunday morning. It does not matter about what the political climate is in our world because we have beheld the Son of the living God and we belong to Him. And that is sufficient in everything. He is all that we need, and praise God, we have Him. So our overcoming the world is nothing that we can do. It's all of what He has done. Who is it? Who is He that overcometh the world? John asked. Well, he says, He is the man who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He has seen Christ for who He is. He's seen what He's done. He's realized that Christ has perfected the work of righteousness. And the one who overcomes is merely the one who rests in that finished work. Now friends, in light of that, and in light of the 
events of the last week. I want you to hear this week the silence of the sufficiency of Christ in the mouths of our leaders and in the mouths of our news commentators, in the mouths of our policymakers, our legislatures. They won't talk about in the face of a nation who has given herself over to the point that pastors would abuse women and then use structures inside the church to cover that sin, and in a nation where 18-year-olds slaughter innocent elementary school teachers, we need to return to Christ. And He is sufficient for our nation. He is sufficient not only to redeem us, but also to heal us. And friends, I promise you this. There is no overcoming the obstacles that we face as a nation in any other name than the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no solution to the problem. And you know, when you begin to commend that to people, you need Christ. In our day and age, so many people will say, that's so, that's so small-minded of you. To believe that looking to Jesus is actually going to change anything in our neighborhoods. That's so foolish. That's so 18, 1900s of you. I want you to be reminded that's the eternal view that John has given to the saints in this letter. That the only way to overcome this world is by grace as God redeems us and as we walk by faith. Do you know what I think the most important thing in our nation's life is right now? It's what happens in this church. It's how we actually love one another. It's how we respond to human suffering. It's how we bear witness that Christ is enough in every aspect of our lives. And He is. Would you pray with me? Father God, we lament abuse. We lament the reality that Satan has so lied to men that they would use positions of spiritual authority for their own selfish, fleshly ambitions. God, we, in our hearts, cover ourselves in sackcloth and ashes at the reality that anyone would ever be abused and that be done in so many ways in your name. The world is disgusting and fallen. And God, we ask that you would do what only you can do and bring repentance in the lives of those who have perpetrated these crimes. We ask, Father, that you would heal those who have been victimized. Father, for the families that are suffering at this hour and this moment and they are feeling the sting of death in the lives of their little children, in the lives of their spouses, in the lives of their family members who were lost in that tragedy in Uvalde on Tuesday. Father, we pray for grace that is beyond our expression. But Father, more than anything, we pray that these people would see the glory of Christ. We pray, Father, that you would reveal to them their need, if they're not in Christ, for salvation, such that in a world that is dark and difficult and will be for the duration of their life, they can have joy and fellowship with you, the triune God. 
Father, would you forgive us where we have thought lightly of our relationship with you? Father, would you remind us of how needy we are as your people and that apart from your grace we could do nothing? Uh, Would you give us encouragement this week to live as overcomers, not because we've done anything to be labeled such, but because you have accomplished all things and we are in you and we have been given faith in you. Help us to walk in light of that faith.